As we continue our worship, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 6. If you're visiting with us, uh, you'll find that on page 449 in the blue Bible in the pew pocket in front of you. And as you're turning there, some of you would wonder why we would be going to Psalms at this moment when you know we're headed to Genesis next. Quite frankly, I need time to prepare Genesis ahead of time, and I can't that quickly move from one sermon series to another. (laughs) So in God's providence, maybe it's just a personal goal, I want to preach through the book of Psalms in my lifetime. I think it'd be good for the church. And so anytime I'm between sermon series, you may have not noticed this pattern. I always go back to Psalms. (laughs) And what I find about it is it's always so timely. It's always so timely. I mean, here we are at the peak of the season of sickness. And here is a psalm dedicated to those struggling with the feeling of infirmities. So, my plan, I thought, was a good one. But God's plan is so much better. I'm glad that we can be in Psalm 6 this week, Psalm 7 next week, and then have a guest speaker the week after that before we get into the book of Genesis. But now let's look at this, the Word of God, Psalm 6, uh, beginning at the superscription, going down, obviously, to the end of verse 10. To the choir master, with stringed instruments, according to the Shemineth, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. And Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. A few years ago, someone brought to my attention a rather challenging and intriguing article by the Christian author teacher, church historian, Carl Truman. The title of the article was this, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? What Can Miserable Christians Sing? Through the article, he's asking a pretty interesting question. As a well-known author and speaker, at least in some parts of the evangelical world, he'd been obviously in a lot of churches. He'd sat through a lot of worship services, uh, especially the music portion of the worship service. And one of the things that he thought was so fascinating was the alarming lack of psalms being used in the singing. So there's 150 psalms, part of the original Hebrew hymn book, and very rarely 
do churches actually sing those in any way? And so he ventures a guess. Why is it that churches that preach the gospel veer away from clear psalms just like the ones that we read? Well, his guess is not the style, but he says that the reason why we shy away is probably because of the content. Since the Psalter is filled, if you've ever read it, you know, it is filled with laments, sadness, and unhappiness, and it seems like sometimes the author is tormented and broken, and this doesn't just like happen every once in a while. It's at least a third of the Psalter. And he says, in our modern American culture, this doesn't fit very well. It seems like with many of us, the experience of unhappiness or brokenness isn't anything we want to admit because seeing that kind of stuff out loud would be to admit that we're some kind of, dare I say it, a failure. We live in the land of the American dream where people can pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. They just work harder, they shake it off, and they know how to move on. And yet, it seems like when you come to the Psalms, you've got a bunch of wimps who are just really struggling to handle just the everyday pressures of life. And why would we as a church in the United States of America, of all places, want to actually admit that we're that broken and needy and miserable? He says that we've drunken so deep from the well of Western materialism that we don't know what to do with such complaints and regard them as outright embarrassing. What's the alternative to this? So instead of singing the Psalms, what do we sing instead? Well, we get a diet of what he calls unremittingly jolly choruses and hymns. But the problem with these is that they create unrealistic expectations. They make us think that life on this earth is just one big street party as we march our way into glory. But there's two problems with that. One is theological, the other is pastoral. Theologically speaking, friends, when we read the Bible, we realize that we are living in a fallen world. We're not in heaven yet. Pastorally. There's a bunch of broken people that sit in this room on any given Sunday and they feel weird for being that way. I had an older, wiser pastor just tell me four or five weeks ago. He said, Justin, I don't have any stats to bear this out, but if I had to venture a guess, I would say that 75% of the people who are sitting in your congregation on a Sunday morning are brokenhearted about something. If there's any truth to what he's saying at all, I think we could find a place for lament. The question that I would have for you as we dive into this text, and I don't know how to answer this. It's rhetorical. Don't worry. You don't have to raise your hand. But I really am curious, how many of us would actually admit to being one of these broken individuals? I mean, like, if, it just, if I did say, all right, raise your hand if you're brokenhearted this morning, I wonder how many of you would actually have the courage to raise your hand. I know you're broken. That's, 
fallen world. I get it. But would you actually admit it? Would you dare to profess openly that at times, maybe even a lot of the time, you are one of these miserable Christians? I don't know what you would say. But I would ask you this to help us think. Again, no raising of hands, but just think back to the last month. Here we are, one month into 2019. Have any of you suffered or seen a loved one suffer through physical pain or illness already this year? We're only one month in. I'm just asking, though. Have you experienced that? Have you seen anyone in your immediate family experience that? I'm guessing that that would be a lot of you. Here's the second question. Have any of you been so stressed or so sorrowed or have anyone in your immediate family who is so stressed or so sorrowed that it has interrupted your sleep at least once in the past month? Between the two of those, I'm venturing a guess that that's the majority of the people in the room. And so I'm only establishing that this is the reality But is it something that we would actually admit? Friends, this is miserable. God did not create the world this way. You're not supposed to exist and languish in some type of pain and sorrow and suffering all the time. And yet, you do. You do. I do. We all do. And so on the authority of this text today in Psalm 6, I would tell you as a church that such shame over being broken or miserable should never be. I realize what I'm saying is pretty countercultural. And I'll try to bear it out through the text. But what I want you to understand about the Psalms is this. It is God-given language for us to express together the deepest agonies and joys of our soul. If you want to know what Psalms is all about, it is God-given language to help us express together, not just individually, the deepest agonies and joys of our own soul. Not just the joys, but the agonies and the joys of our own soul. That's what this book is about. I say that it is God-given language Friends, you need to keep in mind as we're reading the text today, even though we like to read the Psalms personally and privately, these aren't personal and private meditations. This wasn't the Hebrew private devotional book. This was the Hebrew hymn book. It was something that was to be used in a corporate gathering just like this. And it is God-given language. One scholar summed up the tone of Psalms so well when he says that their words to God are also God's words to us. When you read this, you're seeing people express their grief or their joy to the Lord, but you need to understand something. God gave them the right words to say so that we can know that we can use this same language as well. This is God teaching us how to come to Him together in joy and in sorrow. And David, the one who has written this, knows the depth of misery, and he is leading all of those in this room who would be struggling with the same, how to approach the Lord. We'll get into it, but I just want to point out four areas, generally speaking, of pain and distress that David's dealing with as he writes this psalm. I want to see if any of you could identify. 
spiritual malady. Verse 1, he feels distant from God. You ever feel that way? Second, psychological terror. There's this sense in which mentally he, seems, he thinks he's about to die. You ever feel that way? Physical suffering. David's pain isn't just mental. There is actually physical pain that he is coping with. And I realize that those of us under a certain age rarely even think about this, but as you begin to age and continue to age, I hear it regularly. Pain just becomes part of life. David identifies. And then finally, he has what I would call interpersonal stress and anxiety Because as a king of a nation, given responsibility, he constantly has enemies. Just because he's sick and suffering doesn't mean he gets a break from being the king of Israel. He has people who are trying to attack him. He has people who are trying to subvert him. And what David has in this psalm is all four of these things at one time. And so the question is, how do you handle the misery? What do miserable Christians sing? I think if I were just to sum up the sermon in in a sentence, if I were to give you the strategy in just the the most pithy form, it would be this. You take it head on in prayer. You take it head on in prayer. The strategy for suffering consists of two parts. There is what we'll see, honest pleading. That's the first part of your prayer. There needs to be honest pleading, verses 1 through 7. And then the second part is confident speaking in verses 8 through 11. So let's look at these together, because if we don't need it now, we will need it soon. First part of the strategy, when you're hurting, plead honestly. Plead honestly. What you see in these first seven verses is an emotional rawness and specificity directed to Yahweh. It is, it is striking how He just opens it up and lets it out at the Lord of the universe. I mean, in a way that many of us are not even comfortable with. I mean, he lists all of his problems. Look at verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. So he's talking to God, and he's somehow scared that, that God is going to pour out his wrath on him, that he's going to discipline him for something that he did wrong. And what we know here is that this isn't a typical psalm of confession where David's actually admitting that he did something wrong because he never confesses any sin in this psalm. But he just feels distant from God. He, he doesn't even just, he, he just not, thinks there's this like trembling, annoying feeling in the back of his head that makes him think that, Lord, I know that you're angry with me about something. So there's the spiritual angst, and then he communicates that there's even something physical. Verse 2. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. He's not only negatively saying, Lord, don't discipline me, but at the same time, he's pleading for grace and for mercy and for healing because it says that he is languishing. It means that his life is withering away. That word languishing is used in the book of Isaiah to talk about dried up fruit on a vine. You ever seen that before? Does your soul ever feel that way? Do you feel like your body is withering away? Like a candle at the bottom of the wick that just is flickering, barely holding on. He's saying, this is how I feel. He says, even in my bones, he says, I am troubled. Heal me, O Lord, 
My bones are troubled. We don't talk about our bones very much, but if you think about his little metaphor here, it makes a lot of sense because the bones of our body represent the most internal part of us. Like It doesn't get any deeper than the bone. We say it was a cut to the bone. It means the deepest part of us. He's saying, in the deepest part of me, To the core of my physical being, I am trembling. I am scared. I am fearful. I am shaking. There is no way to know medically what condition he is referring to. But just from my brief glances at this, it would remind me of someone struggling with Parkinson's. He says that his bones tremble. He's in so much pain that he can't keep himself still. But there's more. Look look at verse 3. There's psychological, like mental torment. He says, my soul, not just the internal physical part of me, my bones, but my soul is also greatly troubled. The immaterial part of me that no one else could see, even it shakes in terror. And he intervenes right here, and he says, but you, O Lord, and notice what he does. He is calling out to God, and he says, how long? He just breaks the sentence. You see that little dash there? (laughs) It's just communicate. Like, he lost the words, and he just decides to say, all right, Lord, the, the physical, the spiritual, the emotional, how long will you let this happen? And this isn't, friends, as we all know, if we've ever taken a long trip with our children, a real question. (laughs) This is a rhetorical device. How long? How long will this car ride be, Mom and Dad? How long will this sermon be, Pastor Justin? How long? We all ask it. How long will I hurt in this way? How long will I feel the emptiness of this lost loved one? How long will I grieve the loss of my dead child? How long will I feel the pain of this divorce? How long will I languish in shame over this failed business? How long will I feel this struggle with this same sin over and over and over again? How long, O Lord? And he's not asking you. And he's not asking me. He is directing his question directly to God himself. He realizes that God could relieve him of this if he wanted to at any moment. And yet he lets him suffer. But there's more. David begins to plead. He begins to plead that he would just let him live. He feels like he's going to die. And in our modern culture, I just, we're so dismissive of, of pain, and we just say, you know what, we're going to be in heaven one day, and everything's going to be okay. Stop your whining. You're going to be in heaven. It's all right. Just, just die. I mean, that's the basic advice we give a lot of people who are suffering. It's going to be all right. And look, David there, he will not let that go. Death for him is not the easiest solution. He likes living. I do too. And notice how he pleads for continued life. He says, 
before in death. Oh, excuse me, verse 4. Turn, O Lord, return to me. It's, it's the, the Hebrew word. Turn, come back. Turn your face to me, O Lord. Deliver or rescue my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Lord, preserve me for... He, now notice his argument. Verse 5. For in death there is no remembrance you of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Now, at first glance, you're reading this and you're thinking, like, what? Does he not believe in heaven? Does he not believe in the afterlife? What's David's problem? Uh, Friends, poetry isn't always a systematic theology. (laughs) David isn't trying to take all of the passages regarding the afterlife and work out a theology here. He just doesn't want to die. And we cut him that break. We let him feel that way. And to be honest, the resurrection in the Old Testament was a rather vague and shadowy notion. We live in light of the New Testament in which we've actually seen someone conquer death on our behalf, but they had never seen that before. There would be some passages in Daniel and Isaiah that would speak to this, but guess what? He doesn't have Daniel or Isaiah. He has some notion that God will preserve him even through the grave, but at this point he's saying, Lord... Keep me alive, because if you keep me alive, I'll be able to remember your name. I'll be able to praise you in the land of the living. If you kill me, I can't praise you. And I kind of like it, because it reminds me of, I mean, even if David is aware, and I believe he is, of life after death, he realizes there's a unique opportunity to proclaiming God's glory in this life. It's kind of like, and again, no offense to anyone who may be on the senior PGA, but it's kind of like someone wanting to stay on the PGA Tour versus the senior PGA Tour. You just don't have the same followers at the senior PGA level that you do at the PGA level. David says, keep me in the game. I want to be in the unique spot in which I can proclaim your glory in the most facilitous and maximus way. I want so many people to understand what you are about. Keep me alive. And then he continues, and this is where he just gets raw. I mean, it just opens up as if it wasn't bad enough. Look at verse 6. He says to God, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with my tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. Friends, I remember reading this as a kid, and I was always like, wow, how do you cry that much that your bed floats? (laughs) Is that even possible? Well, in Hebrew poetry, just like English poetry, there's frequent use of hyperbole or exaggeration. I could tell you something like, my head hurts. Or I could say, my head is about to explode. What conveys more? Sometimes, you know, we just use these lame adjectives like, my back hurts really, really bad. Or we could say something like, my back is killing me. David is not saying that his bed literally floated. He's saying that his life is just characterized by incessant sorrow to the degree that it wakes him up at night and that it makes his furniture float. His bed swims in it. He's ruined his couch. He just can't help but cry over and over and over again. And I like the fact that he says he's weary with it. And that's why I asked you, at what point in the last month have you woken up over some stress or sorrow? That's when you know things are bad. That's when I know personally that I'm under the gun because I can't even sleep well because I keep thinking about stuff that's racing through my mind. 
And that's exactly where David's at. And he's, so, he's worried that he's crying so much, this is fascinating to me, that he's messing up his eyes. <laughs> he says that my eye wastes away like it's dying. It's withering away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Now, in the Old Testament mindset, like in just their own biology, if you will, for them, the eye was the epitome of health. So it's said in Deuteronomy, for example, when it says that Moses was 120 years old, it'll actually say, and he still could see well. Why would it remark on his eyesight? Because that was something typically associated with life. David says, this, this, the one clear indicator, at least in our own biology of what life is, is, is going away, and, and I feel horrible about it. So, Lord, I want you to intervene. And when it rains, it pours, because David had all of these things going on at the same time. He's got his enemies that are causing him stress. He's got these emotional issues. He's got these physical issues. He's got his spiritual doubts. I mean, when it rains, it pours. And here's what David does. This is the easiest way I can say it. David lets it out. (laughs) He lets it out. I I read in a fascinating article in USA Today a few years ago about this new business venture that's erupting all across the world, particularly here in the United States. And it's called the Rage Room. Anybody ever heard of a Rage Room? There's one in Miami. If you drive over to Miami, even today, you could reserve a 15-minute session in a rage room for 30 bucks. And what you'll have the ability to do is you'll wear a suit and a mask, and you'll be able to go in with a baseball bat and destroy China, TVs, monitors, cars, whatever. It's just a warehouse full of things that you can beat up. Now, some of you are laughing at that. I would love to do that. <laughs> I mean, have you ever felt that way? I'd gladly give 30 bucks for 15 minutes just to let it all out. And you know, it seems like that's what David's doing here. He isn't holding anything back. He is frustrated beyond belief. He's experiencing it from every side, and he's saying, God, this is the way that I feel. This is everything that's going on. And what is so interesting to me is that he doesn't just let it out, if you will. He offers it up. He doesn't just bemoan his circumstances. He beseeches his Savior. He's not just complaining, but he is praying to God Almighty. This isn't just open confession, but what I want you to see is that he is targeting God, and he is asking him to do something. There aren't just problems being released here. It is a petition. It is a petition to a person. Notice how, just briefly, in these verses, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger. Discipline me nor discipline me in your wrath. He's asking God to do something. Be gracious to me. Heal me. Return to me. Deliver me. Save me. Do you see what he's doing? He's asking God to do something. He's asking him to intervene. And what I find the most interesting about this particular section is not only what he is asking God to do, but who he is asking. He doesn't just ask God The text keeps using, you'll see it in your English Bible, the word Lord. 
in all caps. Now, you may be thinking like, oh, well, that's interesting. They just felt like capitalizing. Well, I want you to know it's actually conveying to you a different Hebrew word for just the God word in general. So God in Hebrew is Elohim. Lord in all caps, anytime you see something in all caps in the Old Testament, whether it be God or I am or Lord, is the Hebrew word for Yahweh. Yahweh is God's special covenant name for his people. God is just generic. There's God and God's. That word Elohim is sometimes used in a singular sense. Sometimes it's used in plural to talk about the gods. But when you get to Yahweh, if you don't mind me saying it this way, but now we're on a first name basis. God only gave his name, if you will, to his special people, and they were to know that they had a unique relationship with him. You first see this back in Exodus chapter 3, if you want to research it later this afternoon. And notice how David talks to him. He doesn't just speak to him as the great spirit in the sky or just God in general. He calls him by this relational name, Yahweh. You see it in verse 1. You see it twice in verse 2. You see it again in verse 3. You see it again in verse 4. David is leveraging this special relationship with the Lord. And he even argues that God would save his life on the basis of his steadfast love. Did you see that there? In verse 4, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. I don't know what your translation says, but that particular word for love in Hebrew is so special because it is his relational love that he only pours out and shows to his people. Sometimes it's called his faithful love. Sometimes it's called his loyal love. But it isn't just his general love for mankind. It is his special love. I may love you as church members, but I love her in a special way. God may love the world in a general sense, but he loves his people in a special way. And David is appealing to that special love, to that special relationship, and that is the one that he's pouring this lament out to. And so what I want you to understand about this is that, friends, we don't need a rage room. We need a throne room. The one who can handle all of our frustration and bitterness and sorrow and angst over living in a fallen world is Yahweh Himself. The one with whom we enjoy a special relationship. I don't want to sound sarcastic, but I do know of Some of you, and I'm thinking generally, I don't have anybody's name in mind. But I know of Christians that exist who say, how dare you encourage people to talk to God that way? Indeed, it is a throne of grace, but it's still a throne. We we shouldn't speak to God in such terms. Friends, God already knows. If you already feel that way, I want you to know he, made, he knows how you feel already. So you're not hiding anything by not saying it. See, the question isn't, will I respond when stressed out and sorrowful? The question is, how will I respond? And what David is modeling for us here is that the response should be to the Lord, to the one with whom we enjoy special relationship. If you don't do that, if you don't go the route of supplication, you will take five other troublesome routes 
And I would encourage you to see what your default is here. Some of you will go the route of internalization. You bottle it up. You, you bring it all in. You, 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 just, you don't tell anybody else about it. You're, just, you're, you're red with rage. You're ticked off at everyone. Nobody knows what your problem is. It's because you haven't let it out. <laughs> internalization, that is not the biblical way of coping with stress and sorrow. Another faulty way in which we respond to this type of trouble is minimization. Minimization. It's kind of like we just tell people, it's not that bad, suck it up. It's not a big deal. It could be worse. Friends, if that's the best advice you can give to someone who's suffering, or if that's the best that you can do in your own suffering, it's telling yourself, it could be worse. You have no better hope than the lost dude at the bus stop down the street. It could be, of course it could be worse. <laughs> that doesn't help. We need to actually give it to the Lord and acknowledge how bad it really is. So minimization doesn't help with anything. Internalization doesn't help with anything. Another thing that we do, and this is so common, is desensitization. So we try to numb ourselves. We try to numb ourselves to the pain that we're experiencing. And this is, to me, the typical American Western way of dealing with things. How about I just numb it? And yeah, there are the, the normal ways to numb it. You can numb it with several glasses of wine, or you can numb it with prescription pain medications. But I'm not talking about the most obvious ways of numbing pain. I'm talking about the other surfacey ways of numbing pain. Like binge-watching like three seasons on Netflix. Or diving down the social media rabbit hole. And then two and a half later, you're like, man, where'd all the time go? Friends, that is not a Christian way of handling your problems. I'm not saying that any of those things, whether it be alcohol, medication, or entertainment, are bad. What I'm saying is those aren't the methods by which we as believers cope with the problem. They may be supplementary things, but they are not primary things. The primary thing is to give it to the Lord, to give our supplication to Him. And so, I tell you to go to the throne room. Practically speaking, this is the way it would work. It would be you on your knees before the Lord, telling Him everything that you don't like about your current circumstances and all the ways in which you hurt. The house that we live in now, I wish that I could build our own house. This is the only thing that I would really want, is I would want a closet with soundproof walls so that I could pray as loudly and as passionately as I wanted to without being scared that other people would hear me. Does anybody else ever feel that way? I've had times where I was in Bible college. Remember, I wanted this experience so much. I just wanted to be able to talk to God. I literally went out on a mile and a half walk in the middle of the woods somewhere, and I was like, yes, it's finally me and the Lord. And I remember just being on my face, just praying as loud as I could. And then all of a sudden, I hear scuffling in the woods, and here comes three people walking. I'm like, where did you come from? <laughs> There's just nowhere. I try to pray into a pillow. I just I, 
I wish that we could do this. You know what? And maybe I just need to bolden up and do it. But here it is. You ever feel that way? You have that longing? Just do it. That is a Christian longing. That is God inviting you to release the discharge of all the stress and the pressure that you're feeling because He is the one that can handle it. So the psalmist is modeling for us what to do when hurting. The first thing is plead honestly. The second thing to do when hurting this is in verses 8 through 11, is to speak confidently. Speak confidently. Now, don't be scared here because there's only a few verses. The reason why I spent the most time on point one as opposed to point two is because David's actually spent the most time on his lamenting. And then it's only in verses 8 through 11 where he begins to actually speak confidently. And it's crazy how it changes. Notice, look at verse 8. It's a totally different tone. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. You wonder what in the world happened between verses 7 and 8? Something did. He starts speaking confidently, expectantly. And what's at the focus of this, especially in the, in the Hebrew mind, is, is in the Hebrew interpreter of poetry, they would have noticed this, it's called a tricolon, when you have three very similar statements back to back. We emphasize things with exclamation points and bold font. The Hebrews ex, ex, uh, emphasize things by repetition. Notice how he repeats three times in a row what God has done in response to his weeping, he says, the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. David is confident after having spoken to Yahweh about this and knowing the relational nature of the one to whom he was speaking, that God heard him. He has heard him and will hear him. The, the verb tense changes between those first two and the last one. He's actually emphasizing the whole thing. God heard me then. He will hear me in the future to the degree that David says to his enemies, whether they be metaphorical or real, be gone. Be gone. Just go. He actually uses an interesting word because remember in the earlier passage where he talked about his bones being troubled, his soul being troubled, he's saying that now you're the one that will experience trouble. Go. This will now befall you. He can speak confidently on the basis of the one to whom he has spoken. And there is something about speaking to the one who can actually do something about it that gives us confidence. I got permission from the couple before I share this story. But it has been fun for me over the last month to watch my own children playing soccer at the local Beacons field. And as much as I've enjoyed watching my own children, I may have enjoyed watching Chris and Cecily's daughter even more. If you've never met Sadie Johnson, she is cuteness incarnate. She's got nice, like, chubby cheeks and big eyes, and today she's even wearing a happy birthday headband. And to see her out there on that soccer field is just a sight to behold because I'm assuming it's the first time she's ever played. And she does the normal things that, you know, a four-year-old at the time would do, you know, like kind of chasing the butterflies. 
but she also will get into the game sometimes and fall. And again, those big eyes, it's just amazing what she does. She looks to whatever parent is standing on the side. It's like a homing signal that she's sending out for their sympathy. And then sometimes she walks over. Sometimes it's just the eye contact was good enough. But after the expression of lament and frustration, she gets up and she goes back and she plays again. Now, there's nothing unique to the the Sadie Johnson experience, if you will. But it's so typical of the way that we expect needy children to act. They just don't want to know that you can. They want to know that you care. Right? And yet as they get older, we start telling them, brush it off. It's not that big a deal. It's just a knee. You know, that big thing. And, and, and rightfully so. As Sadie gets older, I'm sure that her parents will begin to tell her those things as I have with my own children. And we encourage that. And we promote that physically. But spiritually, we're working the other direction. All of us have been born with this innate pride and self-sufficiency that says, not a big deal, I could brush it off, I'm going to keep playing. And we look to ourselves and we look to others for some type of solace when things go bad. And we move on. I mean, none of you today, this morning, were were huddled up in a corner somewhere. You made it to church, and everybody pats you on the back for it. Glad you made it today. And yet we still need to understand that our spiritual state is one of need before an almighty God who actually cares. We need to move backward. We need to move into dependency from self-sufficiency. That is what David has done in this text. He is no wuss. He is the king of Israel. He is someone who has fought battles. He has killed people. And yet he models for us here this neediness, this dependence, this wide-eyed expression of absolute wonder and amazement that Yahweh would be the one who would intervene for him. That is what he is teaching us. When that happens, you then can begin to get up Brush yourself off and speak confidently about the ways that the Lord will do His work. So I I say to you, plead honestly, but then speak confidently because your God has heard you. We all know that He can, but do we all know that He cares? I have in recent days come across um, or been fascinated with an old Puritan writer by the name of Thomas Goodwin. He was born in the 1600s. You've probably never heard of him before, even though he seemed to be a phenomenal preacher in his own right. His specialty in preaching was the Pauline epistles. His specialty in writing was this particular topic, and he titled the book, The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth. Now, I don't think that any of you will go out and buy a copy of that. It's free online, by the way, if you want it. It's pretty dense. It's pretty heavy. But the argument that he makes is fascinating because he says, on the basis of what we see in Hebrews chapter 4, that Jesus Christ is actually closer to us now than he was when he was actually on the earth. Sometimes we think, oh, well, he was here on the earth, he knew how we feel, and now he's up in heaven and he's kind of far away, but he's not as close as he used to be. 
Goodwin is saying that, no, he's actually closer now than he was when he was on the earth because his role has changed. Now he is a high priest, an intermediary. We read this passage earlier, and maybe you didn't pick up on its significance, but let me read for you again with emphasis Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 15 to bear this out. He says, Since we then have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So the good news is Jesus is in heaven on our behalf. I mean, that's a long ways away. But notice this, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us draw near to the throne of grace. Now do you see what's going on here? I want you to catch the significance of this. It isn't just that Jesus is up in heaven, but Jesus is up in heaven. Having experienced our humanity, he knows how to sympathize with everything we'll ever go through in a way unique to only us. It wasn't, he doesn't just sympathize us, with us theoretically as creator. He sympathizes with us as God incarnate. The one who entered into our flesh. The one who entered into our misery. The one who entered into our pain. The one who entered into our death. He knows all of our struggles and he cares. He invites us into his presence, not only through his power, but through his grace. And so we see this invitation. We, we know that he loves us and he's drawing us in and it enables us then. As we look to Christ, then to speak confidently. Because we know He's going to intervene. He's already taken care of the greatest need. Everything has been handled and solved in the person of Jesus. And so we speak confidently. So Justin, is this a New Testament thing? I assure you it is. For those of you who like to write down stuff, write down these these references. Romans 8, verses 18 through 39. Romans 8, 18 through 39. I'll give you one more, even though I have four. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 5, 10. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 5, 10. And a myriad of other passages, but my point in giving you these is I want you to see it is normal New Testament idea for us to look to the incarnate Jesus, and then draw hope and confidence for all the things we experience today. What Paul is specifically lamenting in those situations is that people are trying to kill him and that he's about to die. And every time he speaks confidently of his ultimate outcome because of Christ. He has that type of confidence because he knows the nearness of relationship that he enjoys with Christ. I would say this is maybe the most practical advice I could give in regard to this point. Don't listen to yourself. Talk to yourself. You should look at me weird. Don't listen to yourself. Talk to yourself. Sometimes when we get in the mires of doubt and discouragement, we begin to listen. We need to be talking. Because in our unredeemed minds, they will naturally gravitate toward despair and despondency. No, you intentionally give that to the Lord, and then you speak to yourself. 
You preach truth to yourself. You remind yourself about what Christ has done for you on your behalf. And that is how you begin to deal with the suffering that is so endemic to us. We speak confident truth of our ultimate outcome, knowing that even if things fail in this life, we will enjoy Christ in time to come. Get the order right. Remember I made fun of those who just dismissively say, oh, it'll all get better in heaven one day. You don't go there first. You first acknowledge the reality of the pain that you're dealing with, and then you can begin to speak confidently about what Christ has done for you. There's a pastor friend of mine, acquaintance friend, we're in speaking terms, I'll put it that way, who is... um, coming out with a book on this topic of lament. I didn't have any idea that he was doing this. And I just found out about it on Friday as I was doing some research. Johnny Erickson Tata, some of you know her. She's a great example of suffering and finding hope in Christ. She's actually writing the foreword for this book. And the title of the book is Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament. It'll be out in March. So I wanted to see what he had to say on the topic, seeing that I was here in the text anyway. And he's actually created a little blog, a little website, by which he could discuss this. And the blog has a very helpful tag. On the top of every page it reads, Hope springs from truth rehearsed. Hope springs from truth rehearsed. Hope springs from truth rehearsed. That is very biblical. Hope springs from truth rehearsed. When we rehearse the truth of how wrong things are, hope can come. There needs to be an openness in us. May I kindly discourage you from improperly applying passages like Philippians 4, 4 through 7? You've done it to yourself. You've probably done it for others. If you don't know it, there's two really key phrases in there that we really love to beat up hurting people with. The first one is rejoice always. And the other is don't be anxious about anything. Now, if you take those two statements like baseball bats, you really could put a beating on somebody. Always, not sometimes, always. Never not rejoice Don't complain or don't be anxious about anything. Does it say some things or most things? No, it says anything, right? I mean, like, you could see where you would feel really bad about that. But why not read it in its context? Because it says, even though we should rejoice always and not be anxious about anything, it says that we're to do this by letting our requests be made known unto God. Friend, I want you to know that if the bone is broken, it's okay to cry out and ask for it to be fixed. I know God is sovereign. And yes, He ordains even the harmful things or things perceived to be harmful in our lives, but yet we still are invited to run to Him and to ask Him to fix it. Hope springs from truth rehearsed. Speak the truth. It's bad. It's broken. We live in a world still cursed by sin, and it's okay to talk about it. And by the way, it's okay to let them talk about it. If everything's happy and fine and dandy in your world and somebody begins to lament to you the way things are, let them rehearse truth. 
The only thing I would add is encourage them to point it to God. So you know what? You just shared that with me. And I hurt with you in that. Can we give that to the Lord together? Every one of you in this room would be able to do some serious counseling if you would be willing to exercise that type of truth rehearsal. Broken world. Truth rehearsed about the way things are, but there also needs to be truth rehearsed about the way things will be. I don't know the timing. I don't know how long it takes. David here obviously does it in just a few seconds. But in our real heart struggles, there has to be a point eventually where we begin speaking not only the truth about how bad things are, but the truth about how good they are and will be through Christ. And and sometimes it may just be you saying it in faith. You may not feel that way, but you may need to speak the truth of those promises so as to be able to internalize them. And here, and I'm almost done, is the most fascinating part of the verse to me. David, who has no clear promise of the resurrection, I've already explained that. It's kind of a partial understanding of the life to come. And he only has the Pentateuch is able to say with 100% confidence that God's going to work on his behalf and everything's going to be fine. You know what I think? Three words. How much more? How much more? How much more confident can we be in light of having a completed revelation, the entire thing, and having the person and work of Jesus Christ already credited to us on our behalf, one who has actually entered into our suffering, our sorrow, our shame, and conquered over it through His resurrection. I mean, no finding the bones of Jesus. It still testifies to His power, and we know that He is coming back. We have so much more confidence than David even could have had. And so, yeah, let's, let's speak openly and honestly, but also let's speak confidently because Christ has come. We've got it so much better. And that will change the way that you view sorrow. Enter into it, feel it, experience it, give it to Him. And then let those unstoppable truths of gospel promise come from your lips and speak confidently about the life you will enjoy soon to come. A quick word to those who may be a guest today. I keep speaking about Christ and what He's done, the hope that He offers us in suffering, the special relationship with God. Hear me, hear me. It is a special relationship with God. It is one that you can only enjoy through Christ Jesus. If I say everybody's special, you know what I've said? Nobody's special. If I say everybody has a special relationship with God, you know what I'm saying? Nobody has a special relationship with God. This text says that we enjoy a special relationship with God. And that is why we can give Him our sorrow. And as we continue to read through the pages of the Old Testament into the New, it becomes clear that this special relationship is made available to us solely through the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. Nothing else. No one else. 
And so I would tell you today, if you want this type of solace, you want this type of relief, you want this type of confidence, not only for this life, but for the life to come, it comes down to what you will do with Jesus. Are you going to rely on Him alone, or are you going to rely on yourself or someone else or something else? Trust in Him alone to enjoy this. And if you have enjoyed it, Plead honestly. Speak confidently. Let's pray. For the time of prayer, I'm actually borrowing from a prayer that I've found in recent months that I thought would be appropriate for this occasion. It's a prayer for all who may be hurting here today. Father, We were not made for mortality, but for immortality. Our souls are ever in their prime, and so the faltering of our physical bodies repeatedly takes us by surprise. The aches, the frailties, the injuries, the impositions of vexing disease and worsening condition are unwelcome evidences of our long exile from the garden. Even so, may the inescapable decline of our bodies here not be wasted. May it do its tutoring work, inclining our hearts and souls ever more vigorously towards your coming kingdom, O God. While we rightly pray for healing and relief, and sometimes receive the respite of such blessings, give us also patience for the enduring of whatever hardships our journeys entail. For what we endure here in the deterioration of bone and joint, Blood and marrow, muscle and ligament, vitality and mobility and clarity is but our own small share of the malady common to a frayed creation, yet yearning for a promised restoration. Give us humility, therefore, in our infirmities to ask and to receive day by day your mercies as our needs require. Where our dependence on others increases, let us receive their service as a grace rather than a shame. Let us trace in the hands of our caregivers the greater movement of your own hands, for you ever meet us and uphold us in our weakness. And in those moments when our bodies betray our trust, work in us by your own hard experience a more active and Christ-like compassion for the sufferings of others. By the inevitable dwindling of our strength, may the meadow of our true hope at last be proved, rising as the memory of a song stirring deep in the bones a martial melody of which our difficulties are but the approaching drumbeat, reminding us that this flesh and blood are soon to be transformed, redeemed, remade. The infirmities we incur today are but the expected buffetings of a battle at which victorious end our birthright will be forever reclaimed. So may the decline of our bodies incline our hearts and souls ever more vigorously towards your coming kingdom, O God, ever more vigorously. Amen.